This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Cups up. Cups up. Cups up. We are live from Beach Mountain, North Carolina, and we thought we would do this show because the three of us are physically together. So good to see you guys in person. It's been a while. It has been a while. We all have a kind of morning voices. What's this? She joining us? This is my girl, Luna. (laughs) She's sitting next to me on the couch. We've exchanged a couple kisses and a couple eyes, you know, gazing at each other. She's a sweet girl. Yeah. She has nothing to add to the conversation though, does she? She's happy. She's oh, smiling. Let's Actually, let's check. She's a chatty little caddy this morning. Luna, do you want to see something funny? Wait, wait, wait. We got something funny to tell Eric because we want to we get his reaction live. It's not funny, actually. It's really not funny. Do you want to tell him? Yeah, I'll actually read this tweet from Drew Tripp, who's a journalist at ABC4 News and yes, the Low Country. I'm a little slow this morning. Okay, apparently yesterday, Alex Murdoch's lawyers filed a motion of some sort asking Judge Gerkel to either force Nautilus Insurance to add the Satterfields as parties in their insurance fraud lawsuit against them or dismiss the case. That was their latest motion. Well, it's again just another example of them gaming the system. The issue of the Satterfields and whether they have any exposure in accepting money from other culpable parties in connection with Alex's fraud will be heard on August 8th in front of Judge Price. And that should settle the matter once and for all because the state court has jurisdiction over the settlement agreement and the confession of judgment that Alex gave in favor of the Satterfields. But this is just them hedging their bets and trying to game the system the same way that they tried to game the system in the murder trial and have Alex admit to all the fraud. So I don't think the judge Gurgle is going to force um, the Satterfields to become party in that litigation. And I definitely don't think he's going to dismiss the charges from Nautilus Insurance Company. You don't seem surprised though. No, nothing that they- This was foreseeable basically. No, no, I didn't think they'd go to this step. I think they, I thought they would wait till we had the hearing on August 8th to see how it worked out. But I think they're, uh, they're grasping at this point. You know, every time Dick opens his mouth, he trips over it. You know, a couple months ago, he said there won't be a fraud trial on all of Alex's theft, you know, which indicated he would plead guilty. But now all he's trying to do is, again, shift the blame to victims. It's victim shaming and victim blaming that they do all the time. I don't think Judge Gurgle is going to take too kindly to it. I was going to say, I wonder if Judge Gurgle is just going to be like, I've had it. (laughs) I think what Alex just did may end up hurting Russell on Tuesday, believe it or not. It's He's so sick and tired of this sordid affair of what he's seen from uh, Russell since November, the firing of his lawyers, the blaming of Bart Daniel, the constant 
Judge Gurgle, you made a mistake uh, when you discharged those two jurors. Judge Gurgle, you made a mistake when you didn't accept Alex's testimony from the murder trial when he said Russell had nothing to do with it. I think Judge Gurgle has had about up to his neck in all the Alex and Russell affair. And I think Russell's going to get the brunt of it on Tuesday. I hope so, because I, when I was looking at the government's motion, or sorry, their memorandum in response to uh, whatever it is he's trying to pull. A 36-pager. Yeah. It was very clear just from the beginning. I mean, we knew that he wasn't he wasn't cooperating in any way. But with this new, you saw that he's asking for a downward variance. Right. Are you able to explain the difference between a downward departure and a downward variance when it comes to sentencing in the federal guidelines? Downward departure is automatic. Downward variance is it gives a little bit of discretion to the judge. There's going to be a lot of legal arguments on Tuesday where he's claiming that you have to accept the fact that the, the co-conspirator has said, it's my fault, I didn't, that Russell didn't do anything of it. I think he's also quibbling with some of the charges that Judge Gergel let go to the jury on some of the supersedious indictments. So one, I was very surprised that it was only a 9 to 11 year guidelines. I was under the impression that it was going to be somewhere between 18 and 30. All right. And I don't know where, how the guidelines got down the 9 to 11 when the, the crimes that he was convicted of carry 30-year sentences. So pre-sentencing reports are confidential. We're not allowed to see it, at least not at this point. I'm seen. not sure that they're confidential. Are you allowed to see it? I, I think I am allowed to see it. Because I feel like we need to look at that. The, the 9 to 11. And I think Emily was a little bit surprised at that. And she is adamant that he needs to serve at a minimum the 9, hopefully the 11, somewhere in between. They're going to be fighting very hard to get the number down to somewhere, she believes, somewhere between five and seven. So we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Russell, by some accounts, still has a lot of support in the community, but you're not seeing that. What, what support? In the country clubs? In the private in the private dinner clubs? In the private hunting clubs? No. Not in the rank and file. Not in the people that I talk with. Does anybody have any sympathy for Russell Lafitte? Remember, you know... When the Plylers speak on Tuesday and I speak on Tuesday, we're going to be talking about this is the guardian at the gate. He accepted the fiduciary role. So he has to be vigilant and have, you know, a peripheral vision looking for the wolves that are going to come after all these people that have money that he's a custodian for. Remember, these are not people that have had this kind of money. These are people that have suffered hardship. They're not sure of how to manage their money. You're talking about young kids. You're talking about hardworking people. So he's the guy that should have been the guardian at the gate. He wasn't the guardian at the gate. He actually opened the door, let the wolf in, and then worked with the wolves in eating everybody's money. Right. I do worry that people, so people might not know at this point, but there's going to be a couple of hours of arguing ahead of his sentencing because his attorneys are fighting it so hard. And I saw that they're adding, I think her name's Cheryl Schoen. She's with Maynard right, Nexon. Right. I forget. They changed their name. They were Nexon Pruitt, and now they're Maynard. Now they're Maynard. Pruitt, I think. Right. Uh, she's added herself to the case, and I had asked somebody. I don't know. Or she added their Columbia office. She, I think so. I think she was involved with the Parker case for a minute. Yeah. But she, I asked somebody because I was like, is she adding herself to the case now because the judge has already established a dislike for Russell's current Mark lawyers, Mark Moore, yeah. right? Like, so like a softer yeah. voice. Once, if, I think again, it's just. To have a little bit of diversity on those that may argue. So, you know, Emily's a, a female, so maybe they're adding a female. 
Winston's going to argue. Mark Moore's going to argue. Maybe it's just a little bit of balancing. You know, Ronnie and I always talk about it. Too much of Eric isn't a good thing. Too much of Ronnie isn't a good thing. Maybe they'll have a balance. Maybe she's arguing very fine technical legal points. Maybe she's uh, someone that really understands the nuances of sentencing. So, you know, I'll hold my powder until I hear what she has to say. I'm just always leery that women get used in that way. Correct. And it's it's not to detract from a woman's capabilities or what she brings to the table. It's just that I see that happen and it makes me just, it gets me a little bit angry just that why it's now? so close in proximity right. to the hearing. Why now? Right. It just feels very token. Right. And that would just be a hard thing. I mean, it's a lose-lose situation. <laughs> Listen, Emily wants us to talk about what it's like to have the trust broken that Russell did towards the girls and the brazen acts that he did that Russell TV is going to be front and center Good. in this sentence. Are they going to play it? I think she, she may play it uh, during the sentencing. Um, certainly, I am going to talk about it. It's a slap in the face. It's him trying to infect the jury pool, trying to infect Judge Gurgel, trying to infect everybody out there for public sentiment. It's also not only done for what was going to happen in court, but is being done for exactly what you said is this community support. Keep the community behind Russell. From what I understand, he's bringing in the full bench of people to support him and to talk about him. So Emily uh, said that she does something a little different. Usually the government speaks first on a sentencing and she's indicated that she's going to permit the defense to speak first. To hang themselves, basically. Well, that or um, to see what it is that we have to go up against. See the cards. See the cards. So how much of this is going to be I know. So to explain again, in federal court, no cameras, there's no cameras, there's no audio recording, no live feed, et cetera, et cetera. They take our phones. But how much of the arguments on Tuesday are going to be in public court versus behind the scenes or behind closed uh, doors? Unfortunately, you two aren't writing anymore. So if you were writing, the public would... I will, we'll, we're going to be there. We'll be tweeting. No, but tweet. I'm talking about really writing those robust news right, articles yeah, where you go. would do a full expose. So you're saying that the editorial writers in South Carolina should have picked up on that. And yeah, I think, I, you know, who's going to tell the real honest to God, true story, because I think a lot of it needs to get out. The public needs to know. One, now everybody's suspect as to why is it nine to 11 years when everybody was being told 30 years right. and, and this new sentence is 65 years. How all of a sudden? So all that needs to be explained. Right. And it's the Bureau of Prisons that puts together the pre-sentencing report with the guidelines, correct? Right. And you, you notice yeah. in state court, there's no such pre-sentence right. report. Yeah. You know, it's up to the judge. He looks at the statute and says, the statute says, well, you just got convicted of X. It's 30 years and right. boom. Right. So I guess what the Bureau, they're, what they're doing is they're following a formula, though. So it's very, is there a wiggle room there in terms of like if somebody wanted to be very subjective about it? I think that's the variance that you're talking about with Judge Gurgel. How much that's can he do right? How much outside can, the guidelines? Outside the guidelines, can he come down? But the guidelines were put in place under the 1994 Crime Act by Biden to give certainty in sentencing, give a little bit of discretion, but the between the fence posts for a judge. But the judge can't go beyond this fence post and go beyond that right. fence post. He could stay in the middle. The issue here is going to be, you know, what's the explanation for 
only 9 to 11. Can Judge Gurgle depart? Why should he depart? What, what would be a reason why he would depart? Did Russell cooperate? The answer is no. Did Russell take the government to trial? Yes. Did they make the government spend a lot of money? Yes. Did he file every single post-trial motion that he could and then blame the judge? Yes. So where do you see any type of compassion or any type of discretion being employed to benefit Russell here? I don't. Yeah. You know, as I look at the bigger picture of things, like I think we can all agree that Alec is arrogant, thinks and entitled, right? But then when I look at it, like I scope out a little bit farther from it, and it looks to me like Russell might actually win the award for the most entitled and the most arrogant throughout all of this. Because Mark Tinsley said in our, uh, we had a happy hour with him this right. past week, and he called Alec a dunce. And it was just the most um, hard hitting insult that I could imagine call it, because there's just such a long list of names that you could call Alec. And a dunce just perfectly just sums it all up and it's got the perfect, it's onomatopoetic. It's just the perfect word for him. So the arrogance comes off a little differently, right? It, it, he fouls this thing with Nautilus. It's just like another eye roll. He backs up on his settlement uh, agreement with the Beach family. Now he's making that difficult. It's just, he's just annoying. But Russell comes in here like, in every single way, he is, it's, it's almost like he's just so aghast that anyone would ever find Russell Lafitte to be repugnant and deserving of any sort of punishment. You can look at Jan Manikowski. You can look at a lot of the other board members that testified at that trial. Real coat and tie, real polished guys. When I hear Russell Lafitte talk, I don't hear polish. No. I don't see, you know, the Union League banker, okay? Right. He does not come across as that. This guy would no more be president of a bank if his dad didn't own the bank than the man in the moon. You, you'd find him at, you know, a mid-level manager That's in some company. Point. But he's not, he does, I know he thinks of himself as being, you know, the good old boy and I'm, I control what goes on in this town and I'm one of the, the more powerful people, but he's not. He's an idiot. He talks it. He talks like an idiot. He doesn't talk like a banker. Arrogant, though, in my... So right. there's a polished arrogance, sure. Like, you know, Dick Harpoolian is more of a polished arrogance, I would say, right? Or he's, used to be. Yeah, or used to be. A shinier, no. like a shinier version of it, maybe? Yeah, or a duller version of that. He's a, he's just a, a good old boy that thinks so much of himself. Dick Harpoolian? No, no, no. I'm talking about... Oh, I, no. I, I, yeah, so Russell, Russell. to me is just more of um it's like looking at a child in a 50 something year old man's body because he is like grabbing onto his mom's skirt he's holding his dad's hand he's got all these people around him that feed him this idea that what he did wasn't that bad but you look at it again he didn't cooperate with the government he has not shown any amount of remorse none no contrition yeah, it's like he got tricked. Because here's the thing. you Let's just accept that he got tricked by Alec. Let's just take his little argument that this was all, you know, he got tricked by Alec. He was the victim here. You have to take responsibility for being dumb enough to have been tricked by Alec. And that response, given, given your role right. as bank president, right. and even if you only have that role because your dad owns the bank. Right. 
You, you are 100% right. Yeah, and I thought, I mean, watching him on the stand, I thought not only was he unpolished, but he was also, like, struggling with trying to present himself as, like, a country boy farmer. Like, he didn't belong in that category either. He's not a, like, down-to-earth guy that people want to get a beer with either. He is a... That his lawyers had him prepared in a certain way, that they wanted him to show contrition that they wanted him You're talking about Matt Austin Matt Austin and Bart you, the, the way he was prepared whether it was by the jury consultants or witness prep this is how they prepared him but then he has this personality that he thinks I know better and there was this struggle with at times that? that it waved back and forth to I'm a nice guy and then all of a sudden defiant. Right. And then finally he abandoned the preparation that he got from his lawyers and said, I'm going on me because I can yeah. sell me the same way that Alex thought he could sell himself. Yeah, it was. uh this is the arrogance you yeah, talk about. And the the moment for me that I was like, oh, this is not going well for Russell is Emily objected. Emily Limehouse objected to something and he like talked back to her and, or he said that's not an objection or yeah. something. It was Judge Gurgle said, I think I handle yeah, that. Right. And judge and the judge is like, oh, that's my job, sir. Who do you think you are? And he got really like red and angry and you could tell he wanted to be in control of the situation and he wasn't. And I think he was just used to this world where he could interrupt people. He could do things like that all the time because he was Russell Lafitte and his family on the bank. And but I think that like that's the that's what makes the Murdoch story so fascinating and also disheartening is it's not just about Alex Murdoch. It's about all of these people that went along with it and all these people that encouraged people like Russell afterwards and were like, you what you did wasn't that bad. And that's what creates you this. Just, I'm irritated with Charlie and Greg. I want to know what has been going on with them for the last 18 months. Yeah. They're lawyered up. Have they been questioned? Have they been asked to give a 302? Have they gone before a grand jury? I want to hear what Charlie's going to say about his son on Tuesday. Is he going to be a father that stands up and say, it's on me? I, I should have watched out. He was just doing what I wanted him to do or what we wanted him to do at the board. You know, is Charlie going to walk himself into a problem? So that's going to interest me to see how far his dad, if he speaks. I mean, obviously, you'll hear from the mother and you will probably hear from a child. And it's going to be sad to hear from a child standpoint. And I don't have a problem at all with a child you know, sad that their father's going to go away. But Charlie's going to be an interesting thing if he decides to get up and speak. Is Jan Manikowski going to get up and speak on behalf of the government to say, hey, he hurt our bank. He hurt our reputation. We've suffered because of it. He needs to pay the price. Remember, who's going to talk on behalf of the government? Not just Eric and the Plylers, but there has to be some bank officials right. that are going to talk. For me, it's not credible that Charlie gets to say, I didn't know anything of what Russell's doing, given the nature of the relationship that he discussed. And given that he said, I didn't have to go to the other board members because I spoke to my father and Gray and we had the votes right. that came out at trial. Right. This is the, you know, we're resuming the energy that, you know, it waxed and waned. So we're resuming this energy Again, it's going to be here. And then 15 days later, we have Corey's um, sentencing. And then we have Corey's trial in September. So we will be right back.
Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. So let's talk about Corey. I'm concerned about what's going on with Corey and the order, how fast he was able to get a sentencing date from the time his federal charges were filed very, very quickly and before his state court. So what does that mean for his state trial? According to my discussions with Creighton, it means nothing. He is unwilling to stop the state train because he's getting no cooperation from from Corey. So I don't know whether Corey's given that cooperation to the federal government. He's pleading guilty. But I, I don't, from what I'm told by Creighton, they're going forward full speed ahead. Okay. So for example, let's just say Corey gets two years for his federal. Is that possible? Is that possible? Sure. Sure. Given that Russell went to trial and was convicted of uh, a fraud, conspiracy, bank fraud, and it's only nine to 11, and Corey's only pleading to what? One count of conspiracy. You know, I'd be shocked if his guidelines are anything more than two to three years, two to four years. And so if he's cooperating, then he does get that downward departure and he's going to go serve, start serving his time in federal prison. Now, the interesting thing is, if he goes forward on his trial in, in state court and he gets convicted, you know, when that federal time's over with, then he's going to have to shift over to a state court prison. Wouldn't it have helped him to cooperate with the state a little bit? Like, what does he think he's doing right now by cooperating with the federal government, possibly getting that, you know, two years or less in prison? How does that help him at all if ultimately he's going to have to face? I think he's banking on the fact that the public is getting tired of this, tired of Murdoch, tired of the money being spent. Alex is behind bars. Corey's behind bars. And maybe that it'll just be enough that somebody says, look, we're tired of spending all of this money on Murdoch. There's other people that need to be tried. Murdoch, when I say Murdoch, it's the Murdoch. You know, the envelope of Myrtle. Right. What makes you think people are getting tired of it? I hear some of it. You're talking about people in your, like lawyers? Are you talking about the... Um, Lawyers a little bit, but it's more everyday people. Like I've heard the word piling on. Listen, not that they don't think that they're not guilty, not that they don't think that they have to pay for it. But when they hear additional charges, it's 900 years and the additional charges make it another 150 years. How much do you need? And I have to educate them. Well, if the murder charges get reversed, the murder conviction, now we're back to square one. So we got to make sure we have something that sticks that puts this guy behind bars till the end of time. Then the other thing is, it seems like we're eating the same meal every day. It's the happy meal every day. We need other people because the public is saying it's not just Russell, Alex, and Corey. And that's what makes me scared when you say that people are saying piling on. And I understand that like 900 years is is obviously not a real thing. But also, I do think that there has to be a message sent for each of those charts. I think 
everything that he's been caught doing needs to have a corresponding charge, in my opinion. And a corresponding charge is obviously going to come with a sentencing guideline. But the piling on thing, I think, is something that you say, like, this is where we cross into, is Murdoch for, is this about justice or is this about entertainment? Piling on for, enter, you know, entertainment, people are sick of it. I totally understand that. But there's so much more behind it that I'm afraid that the piling on statements are getting used as a way to, like, let's just stop it here. And let's not look into those other people who we all know are involved in some way. Does Dick and Alex and Jim really want it to stop? That's the other question you should I don't ask think yourself. So. I can imagine Dick, uh, Jim probably doesn't. There you go. Yeah, they we got documentaries. Yeah, it, this is yeah. food. Dick gets to smile and grin like a Cheshire cat for every time he makes a motion. It becomes part of a documentary. You know, I don't know. This is the this is the Alex Myrtle industry now. Well, you saw that Mark Tinsley objected to uh, Alec wanted to make his deposition not be able to be be made public. I guess like he wanted to put it under seal, or what would the word be for that? If you seal. yeah seal the deposition, and Mark did not agree to that, and simply for the fear that they were doing that as a way to preserve their own, they they were using the deposition as a way to create content right. for a documentary or for whatever endeavors they want to do with Hollywood or what have you, and they were going to use the deposition as a way to uh, have just Alex say the things Alex says when he has the microphone. Mark was brilliant when he said, I'm not attending Alex's yeah. deposition. Why am I going to give him a platform? Right. You know, I'm not going to do Yeah, he's just going to lie. Yeah. What is the point of this? That's what he does. Yeah. And Other than to create content. That's when, yeah, that's when it, everybody always, I get that question a lot. Like, if you got the opportunity, yeah. would you ever sit down with Alex Murdoch? I would. Yeah, I know you would, but my, I'm with Mark. I'm like, why entertain it? And also it's not a piece of content to me that is like giving a narcissist a bigger platform and a room to manipulate and more room to think that he has more power. And I just don't want to ever be in that category of journalists begging for Alex Murdoch's time and attention like that's just it is it's useless not even worth it he had his platform we heard him for a day on the stand at least it was two two days yeah we've seen we've all seen his naked pictures (laughs) yeah we've seen a lot we got him we got he's checked i hope the uh brian sterling in the department of corrections do does not give him the opportunity to do an interview but you're going to see it in the coming years if he's convicted and that conviction sticks on the murder or the other convictions take place right. and we know that he's there for the rest of his life, that's when that golden interview is going to come. The next move is going to be to get him out of the South Carolina prison system, right? Move to another state. I was under the impression that SEDC has very strict rules about prisoners doing interviews, that we are a, we're not a a state where a journalist can just walk in and film a it's very very but they also do i mean susan smith was able to give her interviews and right am i not misremembering that i don't remember back in the i think she gave an interview and it was in print it was a big story of what susan smith's life was like 15 20 years later okay and maybe some attributed quotes to her, but you may be right. I'll look that up. Yeah, I don't, maybe I'm misremembering, but I I do feel like that, I, I think that they will with Alec. Yeah, really? 
Yeah, I do. But it's like a, it's a sick world that we're entering with like this pieces of content, even to look at a deposition as a piece of content, even and lawyers are doing, it's not even people in the industry. This is lawyers who are supposed to be part of the judicial system, looking at things as how they can benefit their fame. And I released Chad Westendorf's deposition the day I got it. I wanted the world to know, especially Hampton County, where people put their money in Palmetto State Bank. It's a public service. That was important. That was important. That's what I'm saying. I wanted people to to know that this guy can't even define and didn't even know what fiduciary was. That's not content. And what he was saying about Judge Carmen Mullen and his view, like that was extremely important. That was a public service because the public needed to know what was going on there. Alex Murdoch giving his tell-all is not a ever going to be a public service to any. In fact, it's the opposite. So distrust in the system. He's going to say he was a victim. He's going to say how bad Sled was. And And he'll get more of those weird fangirls that are like... Sending them commissary. <laughs> it's yeah. disgusting. Ugh. So it is really gross. I, I'm just sitting here thinking about Corey, though, and just how he really has escaped so far. It just, I mean, part of that's just because sometimes the power, I guess, isn't staying quiet. No, he's listening to his lawyer, Liz. Debbie Barbieri said, I don't want to hear your name. I don't want anybody saying they spoke to you. She said, you stay under the radar. Remember, there's no jailhouse calls you're hearing. You know, yes, there was the one where he had his shirt off and he's running, but he's not giving interviews. His shirt off is okay, generally speaking. (laughs) I don't want to see that either. (laughs) The point is, he's doing exactly as a lawyer would your client, which you would want your client to do when he's going to be asking a judge for leniency. Right. Right. He he's staying under the radar. By the way, I have a bone to pick with Debbie because of what she did at the settlement hearing this week. Or what day is today? Saturday. God, I can it never get it straight. Week. I can it's never get it straight. Monday. No Thursday. That was just yeah. We spoke to Mark Tinsley like minutes after he had gotten okay. home yeah. from driving to York County to have that approved, and he he said that at the end there, basically Debbie wanted to get it on the record that Greg Parker's position is that Mallory got in the boat. So basically, she's she's responsible for her own death, and that they believe that there needs to be something on the record about all the boaters having some responsibility in this. And if, if I don't know exactly, I can't yeah, remember. From what Mark said, representing Corey there, she was representing Greg Parker. She was representing Greg Parker in that in that instance, but there was really no functional reason for what she did, other than I guess like your client. I mean, her client probably wanted her to, but it just just it was cruel. It was not. It was a disservice. Good look for Greg Parker. No, none of it's been a good look for even lawyers in general because you're hearing the other lawyer from North Carolina who said. We're settling because of the rulings of the judge. The judge denied the motion to change the venue. The judge denied the motion to segregate Alex from Greg Parker at the trial. And the insurance companies want to settle. Greg Parker doesn't want to settle. Greg Parker didn't do anything wrong. The uh, cashier didn't do anything wrong. We had great policy. It's like, well, then why are you paying $15 million? Okay, if you're really right then right is right. There's no wrong and right. There's no right and wrong. Right. Then stand up for what you believe in. You, you've you burned down our system right. over the last 18 months by saying joint and several liability needs to go. Right. The system's corrupt. You tried to entrap uh, Mark Tinsley. You vilified the Beach family. Right. Okay, if that's what you believe, 
then go show it. But don't pay $15 million and then say, I'm doing it because you suck, Judge. You created this right. with two bad decisions. Right. They make it seem like they they had nothing left to do. Right. But again, it's like Russell. It's like yeah. Greg and Russell, I feel like, are similar in that entitlement, that sense of like, it's everybody else's fault. And I'm going to blame every single person besides myself for this. And I'm going to go down doing that. And I don't care how bad I look. And, that's I, and I don't even think I'll look bad. Yeah. And Corey's just like, whatever you say, Debbie. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, well, like we were talking to a friend last night and she was saying like, I think what Corey did was worse than Russell when it comes to like his oh, yeah. actual interactions. He's a lawyer. The, yeah. He was really supposed to be the the Satterfield's protector no and advocator. No and that is what's heartbreaking. And he looked those kids in the eye and or I think he did. Did he ever even meet with him? No, no. Never wrote him a letter. There's a part of me that wants like Russell and Corey to yeah, serve in the same that. prison so that Corey's like running the prison track and he's just waving to Russell every time he passes him because ultimately <laughs> Corey, by not having Corey TV, by not, you know, by apparently taking some sort of responsibility. I mean, that letter that he sent to the Georgia bar was outrageous. Like it that, I mean, if you- perjury. It's perjury for one. It's under. Oh, it's an affidavit. He signed it with yeah. a notary. It's a. It's a perjured statement. Look at that. I mean, if we looked at, the, if we did a live reading of that letter, like just from beginning to end, yeah, I Lord. honestly think people would stay tuned for the entire thing. But I also don't think it would have any effect on Corey again, it, like because if you're going to look at who's doing the mostest of everything, right? Well, Russell's doing the mostest of arrogance. Corey did the mostest of that as well with that letter. So why now do we have clean Corey coming in? You know, August well, 15th with have, no. That's why you have Big Creighton Energy standing there saying, no, it's not just one charge. He didn't just right. do one thing wrong. Right. The truth of the matter is I still do not know the extent of the relationship between the professional relationship between Corey and Alex. Yes. How deep does it go? Chris Wilson, how wide was this circle right. when there was multiple plaintiffs in a car wreck or a, tr or a truck rollover and Corey was the guy who took the second person in the backseat. How strong and deep did this relationship go? Because it to the public, if it's one count on the Satterfield case, well, then that's it. That's it. It was just one inappropriate relationship. Or was there more? I'm not saying there was more, but I don't know the extent of it. Do you guys know the extent of it? You've done the research on some of the court dockets on when they were co-counsel. There are other cases there that I think cases. need to be looked into, yeah. and I don't see any... And involving Carmen Mullen, too. And cases that Carmen Mullen was in. Where where does she fit into this? She was just, a, just signing off on uh, settlements again. Signing off on things that shouldn't have been signed off on. And where is that? Where is that in uh, reckoning coming? Right. I sent an article this morning about the California bar in the yes, aftermath of the Tom Girardi and Liz, you know more about Tom Girardi than... Oh, yeah. This might be my area of expertise. <laughs> if we're going to talk about Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Uh, but first, we will be right back. <laughs> So 
So I will talk about uh, Tom Girardi real quick. He is the lawyer from the Aaron Brockovich movie. So, you know, the, the warm, fuzzy lawyer who gives his paralegal a million dollar check at the end that mm-hmm. everyone just loves. And he is the husband of Erica Girardi, who is uh, goes by the name Erica Jane. She's a performer. I guess, uh, but she's mostly known for her like over the top glam teams. She's always looking like she's a little younger than Tom, right? Just a little, yeah. I think she might be my age or a little bit older, but he's in. I think he's eighty five or something like that. <laughs> Just a little. So the, the the way that it was presented to the public, I guess, is that he was he had to earn a lot of monies to keep up with his uh, lady, his wife's uh, lifestyle, his hot wife. Yeah, his and, and her perspective would be. I had no idea that that's what he was doing. So, so how did he keep up? Friends. How did he get the money? So to keep up with it, he stole, he's accused of stealing $18 million from client trust accounts. And so it, it is a lot. I remember a friend of mine sent me that, uh, there was a documentary about it as well, but right as the Murdoch stuff was happening, she was like, you need to look into the Tom Girardi stuff because it's exactly the same thing sans the murders and what have you. But um, California, uh, according to the article that Mandy sent this morning from the LA Times, uh, California has now taken action, the California bar. And they've said what happened with Tom Girardi should not have been able to happen. So what we need to do as a state of lawyers is to uh, make it so that everyone has to file paperwork uh, about their client trust accounts. So they have to register their client trust accounts every year with the state of California. And 16, it started with 1,700 lawyers had failed to do that. Now, there are reasons for that. That can be, they said that it could be that the lawyers died. Right. So uh, they gave them an extension. And then I think another 60 came back and uh, filed the right paperwork. But now we have over uh, 1,600, I think it's 1,641 lawyers in in. I'm so used to saying lawyers in South Carolina. Lawyers in California have not registered their client trust accounts. And this is just the first step of what sounds like a multi-step plan that the state bar has in California for how to prevent lawyers from doing what Tom Girardi did, even on a, you know, a lower level, just to, they, they need to be educated on how to handle their client trust accounts. And they need to know that they have to follow guidelines so that it can be sort of I guess uh, there's a layer of monitoring. You you have to have a third party come in and audit and say your trust account is in order. In South Carolina, you know what the only requirement we have to report? And if we don't, then we're published is the CLE requirement. So annually, we have to have 14 hours of CLE and two hours of of, uh, psychological alcohol. Uh, and drug type of which you guys probably all watch on a video. We watch and on, on a video. your other screen so and pause, barely watching it. Every year, there's probably forty lawyers <laughs> yeah. that don't meet their CLE requirements by March first of that year, and usually it's out of state lawyers. There'll be some. Well, there are two. Last year was Corey and Alec. Yeah, yeah. There's some in-state lawyers, but that's the only thing that they want the public to know about that we didn't get our CLEs in. Not that we have to report to the bar. What's the state of our escrow account? Right. And we talked about that a little bit on our happy hour too, about something we, because we want something to be done about client trust accounts and lawyers having some accountability over in the state of South Carolina. And obviously I know that lawyers will probably fight against anything that looks like, you know, the state is interfering with their. Guess what lawyers fight against us. Ronnie and I have been advocates for the last 15 years that lawyers should have 
minimum amounts of insurance, the same way that you have to have minimum amounts to drive your car off this driveway. Uh, The lawyers fight it. So um, it's not known how many lawyers run around naked without insurance coverage, which is another point that if you hire... We talked about this a year ago, you and I remember it. it, It's it's personally offensive to me. Doctors have to have... It's crazy. Yeah, doctors. Lawyers in South Carolina. But you see how far we are behind of reform that needs to be done for our profession. California, look at California has already done this just that quickly. The Tom Girardi thing that quickly. Tom Girardi has not been tried for this. And he wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a murderer. murderer. Shouldn't we have had the Murdoch rule already? Like the Girardi rule? No, but you've, you've seen their statements from the bar. They have said that, like, the media is exaggerating the situation and everything's fine here. They are not taking – the South Carolina bar has not taken any accountability whatsoever. They've not had any sort of a public moment saying, hey, maybe we should at least look at it something and see what how we can prevent this. Yeah. That's what was encouraging to me when reading the article from California. It's like, wow, look what they're doing. They, they took something bad and said how do we make our profession better how do we rise above this so how do we protect people yes how do we protect that's our that's should be our job and instead south carolina every time the the bar ever says anything relatively involved in this they are ducking hiding wanting it to go away and not having a reckoning this it needs there needs to be a big reckoning. Like they're right? still focusing on the lawyers instead of what you say California is focusing on the public. California seems to be focusing on the pu- public of consumers of lawyer services. South Carolina Bar and the ODC still seem to be focusing on lawyers. And to be truth to be told, there is a little bit of turmoil in the ODC because John Nichols left and um, he went back into private practice. And there is an interim director who was a subordinate of John Nichols, but no one who is the chairperson of the ODC. And I'm told that uh, Michael Veersey from the law school wanted it. And we all wanted him because of his ethical background. And I think they named somebody who's an assistant attorney general that doesn't have grievance background, doesn't have an ethics, a legal ethics background, has more of a prosecutorial background. And, um, so there is a turmoil. Hold on a second, because I think I like what you just said. I understand. <laughs> I, I, I understand, but there's a difference between crimes sure. and violations of rules of professional conduct. And there's a lot of violations of rules of professional conduct that happened within a- Alex's sphere. And I want to know what is being sure. done on that. And if there's no director... What is being worked on up there? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. There could be turmoil. They need to fix that fast because it's starting to look like a fascist administration where you just don't fill your department heads because you want to keep purposely keep them open so there's no oversight. Right. And what is being done? And we nobody. There hasn't been an opinion written even on Alex's disbarment. We haven't gotten an opinion from Remember the Supreme that. Court on Gerard Price yet. Yeah. Right. That too. I mean, it, it's unbelievable the amount of just things. I think I think we're in South Carolina in particular, we're just so used to people not paying attention that moving on. This is just, yeah, and moving on. That's why people want to move on quickly because then they don't have to deal with it anymore. Right. And it's, it's not a 
it's not a they they need to recognize i think right now that this is not going to go away like we're not done and we're not going to shut up about it so look if a law firm as big as the parker group or the former myrtle could have issues with their trust account where people didn't know that alex had taken money for improper purposes from that trust account and that's a big firm then it's not too far-fetched to think if they're smaller firms or civil practitioners, what do their trust accounts look like? Right. And it just seems like something that could be fixed very easily with right. regulations and a bar that actually cares. Um, it isn't in denial. That's the, the problem denial. with yeah, the bar, state bar is the, they've been in denial this entire time because they're so used to what we just talked about, which is moving on and just let's make sure people things are fine. We can move on and then it will be done. Look at government, the way it works. When we had the 2008 recession, then we had the Sarbanes-Oxley that came that these go- these corporations have to do reporting. Right. Then you have, you know, when we had the uh, legislators in the 80s in South Carolina, the bribery. Then we had ethics rules put in place. It's okay when you have a Myrtle situation to then put rules in place to deal with it so we don't have a Myrtle situation again. Where is the, the subsequent rules being put in place? Right. So what's interesting with the Tom Girardi article is someone was quoted as saying, you know, like I said, those 1,600 people, they're not all stealing from their clients, most likely. But we have to assume that they, that is one of the reasons why people have not responded, is that their client trust accounts are not up to, to uh, any sort of scrutiny. So that is... A, it could be employee stealing. It right, doesn't necessarily... Exactly, right? No, no, no. It doesn't necessarily mean lawyers. There's a lot of cases that you'll read every year in our bar on advance sheets where it was a subordinate employee that had access to the trust account and the lawyer who's supposed to supervise that did not. And where it happens the most, Liz and Mandy, is in real estate closing practices because hundreds of thousands of dollars come in to pay off a mortgage or for the purchase of a property. And then 30 or 40 checks go out pay off a first mortgage, pay off a second mortgage, deed stamps, title insurance, uh, liens, HOA dues, taxes prorated. So, so many checks go out. And if a lawyer is not keeping abreast of it, then God forbid, if there's a subordinate employee that has a financial problem at home or a hardship and, and knows that their boss is not paying attention, they may dip into the cookie jar. Yeah, that's why it's important. So I, I hope we see some action from the state bar. I mean, if we're not going to see the Supreme Court have a backbone on this, uh, and they might think that they've had one so far, but we haven't seen it. Uh, if we're not going to see the ODC uh, show that this really matters to them, and, and it's all it's going to end up doing is hurting lawyers in the state of South Carolina, because more and more clients are going to be asking questions from the very start, and they're going to be very dubious of honest people along with you know, the, the people that might not be so honest. So it's going to cause more hardship for lawyers in the long run. If you don't have these, uh, this sort of reaction, this big reaction from the Supreme court, from the ODC and from the state bar. So they might want to just keep it tempered, but it's gone too far. We've seen too much and we know too much about what, what is possible in the state. And Alec is not the only one. He, he just isn't. I'll go back to what Mark Tinsley said. He's a dunce. He did. He he does the dunciest of dunce things. So uh, if he's a dunce and there's people, I would assume smarter than him in the bar, right? Come on now. 
you're going to tell me there's no one else who's doing right. it to his right. level. I don't believe right. it. Right. And again, just own up to it. Like get out of the denial mode. That doesn't help anybody. And public trust in lawyers is deteriorating in yeah. South Carolina. Not just in, you know, don't single out lawyers. It's, it's all positions of authority. Yeah. It's judges. It's politicians. It's across the board. Right. But the public does not feel like they're being heard or they're being served. And that's dangerous. Right. That's absolutely right. And we'll be right back. Okay, Eric. Yes. We have our courtroom question okay. for you of the week. Uh-huh. What is the difference between a motion to amend an order and a motion to reconsider? A motion to reconsider is when you ask the court to reconsider an order that was entered because the court either misapprehended the law, that they cited law in the in the brief that's wrong, or that it doesn't actually hold what the judge said it held in the order. And it often exists because our state court judges don't normally write their own orders. They ask both sides to submit a proposed order. And what ends up happening is one side may slant a case's holding a little bit too far. They'll stretch it a little bit too far. It's cute that you say may because you all do it. We all do it. We, 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 we cite favorable language we're supposed to, in our duty of candor to the court under our rules, cite opposing language. But we have a tendency, and I've done it myself, where you only cite the most favorable language from, from, from the decision. So it's either a misapprehension of law or a new fact came up within the knowledge of the parties after the hearing that has relevance to the order and they want the judge to consider it. And oftentimes, motions to reconsider are very, very rarely granted because the court will say, no, I didn't misapprehend the law. Or two, um, these facts were available to you prior to the hearing and you should have brought them up. A motion to amend is different. A motion to amend an order is rarer. But what it says is there could be a scrivener's error in that. You, you, the date's wrong. And the reason that that's important is because I'm going to appeal this and you didn't deny, you didn't grant a statute of limitations and you have the date as 2016 instead of 2015. So a motion to amend the order is I'm not asking you judge to change the decision from granted to denied. I get it that you're not going to change that decision, but I need you to change this because factually you're wrong here. It's just factually wrong. It's not new facts that come in to change it from motion granted to motion denied. I get it. You're not going to change your decision. So that's the difference. So I think we saw a motion to reconsider in the Beach case mm-hmm. involving um, when Judge Hall originally did sever the case right. very temporarily. And there was a misapprehension of the law and, and it, basically what the facts he, were that were given which to Which is him. rare yeah. for a judge. It's a judge basically saying you know what? I was wrong. I shouldn't have signed that order. And how long does a judge have? Uh, A motion to reconsider you make within 10 days. A motion from relief of judgment uh, you can make up to a year. So uh, the motion needs to be made pretty quick within the uh, receiving the final signed order. 
Is that hard for you guys to to go up against a judge and basically say you got it's it's delicate. You're basically saying, um, judge, you were wrong, and here's why. And judges don't like to be told they're wrong. And and these are interim orders, by the way. So if you constantly are making a motion to reconsider on an interim order, and this is the judge that's going to try your case, how many times do you get to tell the judge you're stupid and wrong before the guy says, you know what, I've had enough of this. Every time I enter an order, you're constantly filing a motion to reconsider. I'm not wrong every time. I have a real quick question. Are judges particularly sensitive to... Yes. Um, I... <laughs> because I've read a lot of transcripts where I see a pouty little exchange with a, with a judge who's feeling like they're being questioned so, by the lawyers. Um, I had uh, a verdict in 1992 for $200,000 uh, against the firm. They were this... Um, uh, uh, exercise studio in five points and they sold the second most amount of videos to Jane Fonda. They was a, a female type of, uh, gym and they did all these exercise videos and they stole the allegation was my client made a Soren equipment, Sorenex, um, made a bar that they used in their videos. They were going to buy it from Sorenex and they didn't, they send it to China and China, uh, uh, Chinese manufacturer did it for like a 10th of the price that Soren was going to charge. So I sued because we had an exclusive contract and they got the verdict and um, Henry McKellar, the judge um, didn't like my verdict, uh, told the uh, defendant immediately to make a motion to reconsider. And I argued in my motion to reconsider the verdict um, judge, this is what the appellate court said in Bobo versus Stringer oil. And his exact words are, I don't care what the appellate, said. Well, that was the opening line in my brief. And I remember I was at the judicial conference and he walked up to me and I said, Renee, this is Judge McKellar. And he turned to my wife and said, yeah, your husband's the one who said uh, in an appellate brief, I don't care what the uh, appellate court said, made me look bad. So they they do have feelings. Yeah, they have feelings. They they don't forget. That was that was three years later. And that judge had not forgotten. Unbelievable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk a little good cheer. Just yeah. two minutes. What did we? What was last night for you? We got to, well. First of all, uh, it was fulfilling just a dream I didn't even know I had in the 1990s. But um, meeting Cheryl Crow, we all got to hang out with Cheryl Crow at the Beach Mountain Resort Music Festival, and the show was amazing. First of all, I mean she's just phenomenal. And it was just such a good laid back experience. Uh, but she spent a considerable amount of time with us she did. back there and it was just so generous. A solid 45 minutes when was it was it? supposed to be just the, the message from her staff was she'll say hello real quick. She's got to get ready for the show. Yeah. And I, so, well, I kept seeing like her band kind of being like, I think we got to get on. And she was like, one more second. <laughs> and she kept talking and said, and I was just like, she oh my spent gosh, so much amazing. time with uh, you two. So I didn't, in, in we true, were talking about cases. Yeah. She's supposed to be thinking about her set. Uh, you know, we had problems with, you know, the reverb last night. She's not thinking about that. And there was like, I mean, how many people do you think were thousands? Like it was a big, that was was a a big big crowd. It was a big venue. 10,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but not a bit of nerve about that. Like she, she didn't even, she was like, yeah, yeah, we'll go on stage in a minute. It's like, look at all these people that are here for you. This is crazy. And then hearing her sing that somebody can be that dedicated and that professional and that 
the feeling of I want to entertain people who are here to see me and I'm priv I'm the privileged one that she's been doing this for 40 years and just the enthusiasm she had was amazing. I mean, Natural she's an amazing too. woman, just an amazing she woman. She put on a great show. But she was exactly who I thought she would be. You know, she was exactly, you, you hear all these stories about people meeting celebrities and they're uh, rushed behind the scenes and they're not as nice or they're stressed or blah, right. blah, blah. She was just amazing. It so was, were her people. Yeah. I, I walked in there starstruck and, but she genuinely was looking forward to talking with you guys. And if her set wasn't until nine o'clock as opposed to 8.30, she would have talked to you guys for another half hour. Well, we hope to talk to her more yeah, because she's a true friend. She's awesome. Yeah. And what she, the other thing I just want to mention that was so cool is not only did she allow all, us backstage, but our friends and like we got to share the experience. Yeah. And she was more she was genuinely happy to meet people and was genuinely happy to take pictures. And again, the gratitude that she expressed of like yeah. but she was uh, a dream come true. So let's dedicate our cups down to Cheryl Crow. Cheryl Crow. And let's also to the people that the many people that came up to us at the show to say that they love the podcast. We had so many listeners there and thank you again to everybody who uh, we talked to at the show and thank you to Cheryl Crow and all the people around her and Cups Down. Cups Down. Cups thank down. you for driving down and you guys driving up. It was great to see you. Yeah, great show. This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. <laughs>If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.